0: Good morning. Someone has said, if money talks, all it ever says to me is goodbye. Well, the truth is, it says far more than that. In fact, how we handle money may say as much about us as anything else we do. Did you know that in Jesus' parables he talked more about money than anything else. He had more to say about money than he did about heaven. More to say about money than he did about hell. Why? Because money talks. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, what is your money saying about you? In fact, it might help as you open to James chapter 5 that you also open your wallet or your checkbook and listen to both. Remember the TV show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? This fellow Robin Leach would take his camera crew to someone's extravagant house and then for half an hour he would drool over all their wealth and their glamour and their prestige as if money was the ultimate goal in life. As if when you got money, you had it all. As if these were the people we ought to admire and envy. I wonder what James would think of that show. Well, we don't have to guess because in chapter chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. This is Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with guest host James. And James doesn't begin with any flattering adjectives. He doesn't stand back in awe of all that they have. He cuts right to the chase and says, Behind the opulent facade, you need to have tears and remorse and fear. You see, the rich are not to be envied. They're to be pitied. Now, who is James speaking to here? Who are the rich in chapter 5 and verse 1? Well, it seems clear to me that they are unbelievers. And I say that because of the statements he makes in this passage. In verse 3, he says, Your rust will consume your flesh like fire. And in verse 5, he says, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Those are words reserved for unbelievers. In fact, Notice how he addresses them. In verse 1, he addresses the rich. And then after talking to them in verse 7, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren. In this book, James consistently speaks of the rich as unbelievers. Back in chapter 1 and verse 10, he said, The rich man, like flowering grass, will pass away. In chapter 2, he says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? He says, do not the rich blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called. In fact, in the early church, most of the people were poor. That's why Paul took a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And many of those in other places that gave, gave out of their deep poverty, like the Macedonians. So when James uses the term the rich, he's referring to materialistic, oppressive unbelievers. You say, well, Dan, does that mean it's wrong to be rich? No. Some of God's choicest servants were rich. Abraham was rich. The Bible says in Genesis 13, too, he was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Job had great wealth, and after he went through all his trials, God doubled down on his wealth. Barnabas was a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Proverbs 10, says, God's blessing makes you rich. Deuteronomy eight eighteen says, God gives you the power to make wealth. Listen carefully. What the Bible condemns is not riches. What the Bible condemns is materialism. The issue is not how much money you have. The issue is how much money has you. The issue is not how much you have been entrusted with. It's how much you are trusting in. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 doesn't say money is the root of all evil. What does it say? The love of money is the root of all evil. You see, the trouble with money is that there is nothing quite as enticing. Nothing quite as seductive Nothing quite as alluring. And the trouble with money is that people take gold and they turn it into God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. Why did Jesus choose money? Well, because money is God's chief competition for the throne of your life. Money is either your master or your servant, and it can't be both. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul lists some people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, drunkards. And then he adds this to the list. He says, the covetous. Who's that? Those who love money. Now, why would God put materialism in that list of all those other blatant sins? Well, the answer is because they're in the same league. You see, when you love money, you are hating God. When you are devoted to money, you are despising God. That's why Colossians 3.5 says, Greed is idolatry. Why is it idolatry? Because you are bowing down and worshiping money. And so Jesus says, it's a matter of either or. It's God or it's materialism. So this morning, I want us to ask a few questions that this passage and your wallet can answer. Question number one. Who is materialistic? Who is materialistic? Is it you? I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Three questions. Don't answer out loud. But answer in your heart of hearts. Question number one, are you content with what you have? Paul says in Philippians 4.11, whether I have humble means or prosperity, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. One of the marks of a materialistic person is that they are never content. And what's our world's answer to that feeling of discontent? Credit cards. What's the commercial say? There are some things that money can't buy for everything else. There's MasterCard. We've got infomercials all the time on TV telling you you need the newest gadget. If you can just get the space age potato rotisserie, you'll be content. Just four easy payments. Two immediate lies in that infomercial. Number one the space-age potato rotisserie will not make you content. And number two, there's no such thing as an easy payment. They're all hard. Someone has said there are three kinds of people, the haves, the have-nots, and the have-not paid for what they have. I'm afraid that in America today, We have used credit cards to try and get what can only come from God. And that's contentment. And if you fall for the lie that you can buy it, you will never be content. Because our yearning capacity always exceeds our earning capacity. So as you sit here this morning... If you've got credit card debt that you can't pay off, that's evidence that you're materialistic. If you can't give to God because of your debt, that's evidence that you're materialistic. You see, you have made gold more important than God. Question number one, are you content? Question number two, Who do you depend on? Who do you depend on? When it comes right down to it, are you depending on this word or are you depending on your wallet? Are you depending on God or are you depending upon gold? You see, materialism promotes self-sufficiency. Most of us, as we get older, make more money and accumulate more things. And maybe you're sitting here today saying that now that I have more, I seem to need God less. When I wasn't doing too well, I never missed church. Now I'm doing well. I seem to be too busy most of the time. Now I'm doing well. And I worship God on the golf course. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 25, Jesus said, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Not because of riches, but because riches breed dependency. Our money says in God we trust. I think it would be more appropriate if it said in gold we trust. Are you content with what you have? Who do you depend on? And then pop quiz question number three. What is most important to you? If you made a list of your priorities, what would be number one? See, a materialistic person loses perspective on what really matters. Materialism creeps in and it reverses our priorities. Heard about a fellow who was driving his BMW down a mountain highway. He came to a sharp curve and lost control of the car. It careened toward the cliff and was about to fly over. Seeing that he couldn't control it, pulled off his seatbelt and jumped out, but as he jumped out, he got his arm caught in the door. And as the car sailed over the precipice, it ripped his arm off at the shoulder. He was sitting on the side, dazed by the whole event, looking down and saying, Oh, my Beamer, not my Beamer. A trucker stopped to help the man. As he walked up, he heard him saying, Oh, my Beamer, not my Beamer and he saw the blood gushing from the socket of his shoulder. He said, Mister, I've got to get you to a hospital. Maybe you haven't noticed, but you've lost your arm. The man looked down, saw he had no arm, and said, Oh, my Rolex. Not my Rolex. Mark chapter 5, Jesus delivered a demon-possessed man by the name of Legion. He cast the demons out of Legion into the swine, you remember, and they ran down the hill into the sea and they drowned. And when the people saw that they had lost 2,000 pigs, they asked Jesus to leave. Why? Because possessions were more important to them than people. Some of you couples fight over money. That tells me at least one of you is a materialistic person. Why? Because money has become more important than your marriage. Some of you are sacrificing your family. You're sacrificing your health. You're sacrificing your spiritual life because you believe if you work a little harder and you work a little longer... You can get a little more, and eventually you may have enough. Your priorities are reversed. You see, money talks. If you're not content with what you've got, if you're depending on your pocketbook, if possessions are taking precedence over people, you are materialistic. Now that we've settled that, here's question number two. How do they get their money? And We find this in the passage. We're not told how they got their wealth, but we're we're finding from this passage how they get more of it. And there's two ways. One is withholding wages. Look at verse four. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. In the first century, laborers would gather in the morning in the marketplace, looking to be hired. The parable Jesus told in Matthew 20 kind of tells us how the system worked, because The farmer showed up at 6 a.m. and hired a bunch of guys and took them to his field. And then he came back at 9 a.m. and hired some more guys and took them to his field. Then he came back at noon and got some more. He came back at 3 p.m. and got some more. He came back at 5 p.m. and got some more. And then at 6 p.m. they were done and he paid them all a day's wage. Remember that? Jesus' principle was the last will be first. That's how the process worked. There were no contracts, no labor unions, no minimum wage laws. They had to just trust the farmer that he was going to pay them. In the Old Testament law, several times it says when a person works for you, you are obligated to pay them before the sun goes down. But the people James is addressing are so materialistic that they are withholding the wages of their workers. They were working for the day, and then they told them the check's in the mail. Then there's another way that they got money. Not only withholding wages, but controlling courts. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. They were manipulating the legal system. James said back in chapter 2, verse 6, it's the rich who drags you into court. And so what these rich people did when they wanted your land was that they bought off a civic leader or they bribed a judge and you were condemned and executed. They literally got your land over your dead body. Now fortunately, that doesn't happen today, does it? Sure it does. Human nature is human nature. And when there's a conflict between money and morals, money usually wins. I saw a cartoon where one character asked, what is the golden rule? And the other guy said, whoever has the gold makes the rules. They were getting their money illegally by withholding wages and controlling courts. Third question. How do they use their money? We see two ways in this passage. One, they store it up. Look at verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now, there's nothing wrong with legitimate saving. That's not what he's talking about here. In fact, saving is encouraged in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14 says, Parents are responsible to save up for their children. In the parable of the talents, the master says to his servant, At least you should have put it in the bank to earn interest. Instead, you stuck it in the ground. You say, well, Dan, what's the difference between saving and hoarding? Well, saving is tied to a legitimate need. You save to buy a house. You save to buy a car. You save to pay for college. Hoarding, on the, on the contrast, is collecting for collecting's sake. You're hoarding, but you're not thinking about any need, except your own selfishness. Why do things rot? Why do things get moth-eaten? Why do things rust? Disuse. I've never gotten a moth hole in a wool suit that I was wearing. It always happens when I store it. And what hoarding really is, is building a museum to myself. Some of us have walk-in closets that are so full we can't walk into them. What's that? A museum. You ever have this conversation? Maybe you should give this away. No, I like that suit. But you never wear it. In fact, it doesn't even fit you. I'm going to keep it anyway. When I grew up, we had a house with two living rooms. Maybe you grew up in a house like this. One of the living rooms we lived in. The other living room was a museum. It had the nice furniture. In fact, throughout the week, there was plastic on the couches. We couldn't go in that room. In fact, the dog was trained. He couldn't go in that room. It was a museum. We only went in there on Sunday when we were dressed up in our Sunday go-to-meeting clothes and we went in and got to actually sit on the couch. Wasn't that comfortable anyway. It's a classic example of stockpiling stuff we really don't need. So the rich stored it up and the second thing they did with it is they lived it up. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. The money that you should have paid to your laborers, the money that you could have used to meet the needs of other people, James says instead you spent on yourself. How? Luxuries and pleasure. What's a luxury? A luxury is something that's extravagant and unnecessary. It's not a need. It's a want on steroids. It reminds me of the rich man in Luke 16, 19. Here's the way he's described. Now there was a certain rich man and he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. You spend it on luxuries, things you don't really need. And James says you spend it another way. And that's on pleasures. That word pleasure is the Greek word hedonai. means sinful pleasure. Maybe when James wrote this, he was thinking about a place near the Colosseum in Rome called the Palace of Nero. It was a dining area and in the middle was an open hole like a well. People would eat there, and then they would vomit excess food into this open hole so that they could return to the table and continue to gorge themselves. How do materialistic people use their money? James says, you store it up, and you live it up. Question number four. What will their money do to them? We often think about what money would do for us. James says three things. You may not like them. Number one, it brings misery. Did you see that in verse one? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. If you choose gold over God, it will bring you misery. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, He who trusts in his riches will fall. Looking back, we know that less than 10 years after James wrote this, Jerusalem fell to the Romans. And the rich that he was writing to, who were stockpiling all their goods, found misery because it was all taken away from them. In fact, Josephus, the historian, describes the overthrow of Jerusalem And he says, while the city was besieged, there was a lack of food and many people were going hungry, but the rich who had stockpiled their food were still eating well. So when the soldiers came into the city finally, they singled out the rich and tortured them to discover where their wealth was, where their treasure was, and then they confiscated it. You know how they could tell who the rich were? The rich were the people with flesh on their bones. And the poor people were all skinny and squandered. Now, I can't guarantee that if you're materialistic, your riches are going to bring that kind of dramatic misery on you. But I can guarantee that if you're materialistic, riches bring misery. Because riches cannot satisfy. If you love riches, riches will break your heart. If you trust in riches, they will disappoint you. Solomon, who knew from experience, said in Ecclesiastes 5.13, There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Money can buy you a bed, but it can't buy you sleep. Money can buy you a house, but it can't buy you a home. Money can buy you medicine, but it can't buy you health. Money can buy you amusements, but it can't buy you joy. Money can buy you companions, but it can't buy you true friends. Money can buy you flattery but it can't buy you respect. Money can buy you a million-dollar wedding ring, but it can't buy you love. Materialism leads to misery. One of the saddest accounts in the Bible is in Mark chapter 10, where the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus, and it says, he was very sad, for he was very rich. He was miserably rich. What will money do for you? If you're materialistic, it brings misery. Second thing it does is it vanishes. In the first century, there were three things that people typically stockpiled. They stockpiled food, garments, and precious metals. And James says in verses 2 and 3, Your food has rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, and your precious metals are rusted. Riches don't last. Riches have a short shelf life. And if they don't leave you, guess what? You will leave them. God said to the rich farmer who said, I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to stockpile more grain and I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry for years to come. God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And then God asked this question. Now who will own what you have prepared? you prepared it all with your big plans, but you're leaving it and somebody else is going to enjoy what you stockpile. I've done a lot of funerals. I almost always see pallbearers at a funeral. I've never seen bellboys. Never seen a moving van. Never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You see, this is one trip you cannot pack for. You came into this world naked, you're going to go out naked. Empty-handed. In 1923, a group of seven financial giants gathered together at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Their combined wealth totaled more than the worth of the United States Treasury. Their meeting was considered one of the most significant financial meetings in the history of our country. 25 years later, in 1948, James C. Hefley tracked down these seven men, and here's what he found. Charles Schwab, president of the largest independent steel company, had died penniless. Arthur Cutter, millionaire wheat speculator, had died penniless. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange, had recently been released from Sing Sing Prison. Albert Fall, a member of the presidential cabinet, had been pardoned from prison so he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear on Wall Street, had committed suicide. Leon Frazier, the president of the Bank of International Settlement, had committed suicide. Ivan Kruger, head of the world's greatest monopoly, had committed suicide. Riches bring misery. And riches vanish. But there's a third thing that riches will do for you if you're materialistic. And this is the worst of all. Riches bring judgment. If you ask these people why they're hoarding things, they would probably tell you it's for the future. It's for the last days. And James says in verse 3, the last days are already here. And what comes next? The judgment. And James says to the materialistic person, there are three witnesses against you in God's court. Witness number one is the rust on your stuff. Verse three, your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you. Rust is the evidence of disuse and it's going to witness against you in a future day. That rather than giving your goods to other people, rather than using them for the furtherance of the gospel of Christ, you stockpiled them and they rusted and they were wasted away. We played Uno last night. You ever play Uno? The object of the game, it says on the box, it's a race to get rid of all your cards. And the person who has the most cards at the end of the game loses. I would suggest to you that that's a great analogy of life. You need to be approaching life saying, how can I get rid of my cards? How can I give my stuff to other people who need it? Because guess what? The person who has the most toys at the end loses loses we should be going through life saying uno i'm down to one most of us go through life saying ocho cinco just thought of that it's spanish First witness is rust. Second witness is the unpaid wages. Look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. See, James says to this rich man, you think you got away with not paying them? You didn't get away with it. Because those unpaid wages are crying out against you. See, money talks. And then there's a third witness, and that's the mistreated people. Look at the end of verse 4. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You may have been able to bribe a judge on earth, but you can't bribe God. And these people will have their day in court. Their cries have reached the Lord of Sabaoth. That word Sabaoth means hosts. He is the host of angel armies. And these people may not have had a champion on earth, but guess what? They've got a champion in heaven. And there's going to be a day of reckoning. And then if you want something really sobering, look at the way James sums it up in verse 5. He says, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. When an animal was going to be butchered, It was brought in out of the field and put in a stall and fed grain until it was fat as it could be. And then they would slaughter it. From the cow's perspective, he was living luxuriously. He's got to be saying, I'm out of the weather. This great little stall, they bring me grain every day. I'm just eating to my heart's content. This is wonderful. And outside the stall and out of his sight, across the barn, the butcher is sharpening his knife. And James says to the materialistic person, you are the fattened calf. I don't know about you, but I find this passage very convicting. If you've been to a third world country You know that we have too much stuff. You know that in a worldwide perspective, we are rich. Every one of us is rich. We don't have to worry about whether we're going to eat, we just worry about what flavor we're going to have. We are the rich. So this last question should be the most most important question for you. It is for me. What is the cure for materialism? What's the cure? I think in this passage, we find it in one word in verse 6 when he says, the righteous. How do I make sure I'm the righteous or the one who rightly uses my finances? We're told in Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. If your riches accumulate, don't set your heart on your riches. Say, well, how do I keep from setting my heart on them? Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be." also. If your treasure is your riches, that's where your heart's going to be. If your treasure is your accumulated riches, your stuff, your bank accounts, you're materialistic. You say, well, Dan, how do I Separate my treasure from my riches. Jesus told us. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. So you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Did you know that? You say, well, how do I get my treasure into heaven? I would suggest there are several, several heavenly deposit boxes. One is needy people. If you give to meet the need of another person, you're laying up treasure in heaven. If you give to the work of God and the spread of his gospel, you're investing in heaven. And guess what? When you have more treasure in heaven, than you do on earth? Your heart's in heaven. When you go around saying, Uno, I'm getting rid of my cars, I'm getting rid of my stuff, I'm using it to meet the needs of other people, I'm giving to those who are preaching the gospel, I am investing in heaven, and when I got more up there than I have down here, there's no question where my heart is. Every one of us, is going to one day stand before Jesus Christ. And he's not going to take MasterCard or American Express or Diner's Club. He's not going to take any promissory notes. He's going to want to know three things. What did you do with your money? How much did you leave behind? How many cards did you still have in your hand? And what did you send on ahead? But you know what? Jesus isn't going to even have to ask you because money talks.